Good evening and good day to everybody. I hope you're doing very well and welcome to this 79th live episode of Ask Abhijit. So before we begin, let me just do a few greetings. Let us see who all is there. Rajkumar Singh, Srishti Vlog, Soni Singh, Dungar Singh, Chauhan, Lakshya Laksh Sharma, Ankan Bag, Super Duper, Explorer, Ganpat Vagela, Harshit 2.0, Saikat, Karan, Uma Shankar, uh, Sonu Kumar Singh, Piyush Verma, Hitesh Tiwari, Krishnan, Ashok Kumar, Vimal, Nomesh, IMD, Atmika, Chitra, Komal, Greater India, Karan, uh, Bear, Animish, and uh, lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you, wherever you are. It's great to have you all with us. So as you know, today I'm going to take a bunch of questions from the comments that you have uh, that you have asked in the comments. So shall we begin? Shall we go right, right into it? Let us uh, begin with the questions. And question number one is by Wisdom Bro. Wisdom Bro says, is it true that the Amazon forest is actually man-made? I heard Graham Hancock mentioning it in a podcast. Yes, so until now, uh, the Amazon, until very recently, the Amazon rainforest has been looked upon as a pristine wilderness, untouched by humans and uh, that sort of thing. But in recent times, as more research, new research has been conducted in this enormous rainforest, it has been uh, several surprising things have come to light. First of all, when you do a lidar uh, scanning of the of the terrain of the Amazon rainforest. LIDAR is a laser kind of thing. It's a technology that uses laser to non-destructively peer through the forest and the leaves and see actually what kind of uh, ground covering is, is there, what is the terrain like. So when you do LIDAR analysis, LIDAR scanning of the terrain of the Amazon rainforest, you find there are lots of human structures hidden beneath the thick canopy of the forest. Lots and lots. So it looked like it looks like there was once an extensive network of human habitations, and you know, like cities, towns, villages, even metropolises in the entire Amazon rainforest area. That's point number one. Point number two is that um, if you analyze the species of trees that exist in this enormous rainforest, so so let me bring the map on and let me show you where this rainforest is. So. Uh, so essentially, the Amazon rainforest is this big region in South America, mostly Brazil. This entire green part is essentially more or less the Amazon rainforest, especially this part here, if you can see my mouse pointer. That area is an enormous territory that is covered with rainforest, right? Just for tropical forests. So that's what it is. So when you do an analysis of the... Uh, of the species of plants and trees that you have in the Amazon for rainforest, you find that approximately 50% of the trees belong to just around 1% of the species, which is not a natural thing. So it looks like many of these uh, species of trees were planted there by human beings. And it has emerged in recent times that there is a certain kind of soil that has been used in the past in the Amazon rainforest, a super soil of, of sorts to uh, to uh, engage in agriculture and growing certain species of trees and plants and all that. So it has emerged that in the past, for at least 10, 13,000 years, human beings 
the natives of South America and this region have been planting certain species of trees and plants in this region. And that is what gave rise to the majority of the Amazon rainforest. And uh, uh, significant amounts of um, research is happening right now and you're finding more and more evidence of that. So in the past, there were these clusters or islands of trees and plantations that eventually grew into the Amazon rainforest. Now, how did this happen? What happened to all the human inhabitation? What happened is that the European colonization happened. The Spanish, the Spaniards came into this region, South America. They, they wiped out the natives, they destroyed the natives, and they also brought in many of the old world diseases like smallpox, etc., which ravaged the populations of South America and the Native Americans, even in North America, right? And that's what led to essentially the wiping out of entire uh, uh, cultures and civilizations. And in just a few years or decades, entire cities fell into disrepair. They were abandoned because everyone died. And within 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you have forests growing all over it. And that's how all these great cities and inhabitations just disappeared below beneath the canopy of the of the forest and today you have a vast rainforest there so in short the amazon forest actually is indeed uh, the outgrowth of human plantations and yeah you could say that it it, it originates as a man made forest so that is indeed correct arnav says what is a secret society how is it formed and what are the roles it plays? Any major secret society that impacted the global geopolitics? Well, it's an interesting question, no doubt. But the thing about secret societies is that they are secret. They will not make their presence felt. They will not advertise their existence. And the more successful a secret society is, the more secret and hidden it remains. It will not make itself known. That is the secret of its success. Right. So secret societies have been in existence for a long time, for essentially forever, you could say. Uh, in the 19th century, the, the so-called philosopher Karl Marx, he spoke about the invisible hand, which essentially says there is a class of people, group of people, the so-called super elite or whatever you want to call them, who act behind the scenes, who are hidden from view, and who pull the strings of global geopolitics and affairs and the economy and everything. So Karl Marx alluded to this, and it's always been known that there have been such secret societies and uh, secret strata, secret power structures, extra governmental, extra democratic power structures that exist throughout the world, including even today. And they have been given a number of names. There is the alleged the alleged uh, nine secret men or nine special men of Ashok or Chandragupta Mori or somebody else that suppose that supposedly exists possibly even today in India. Who knows? Then there is the so-called uh, Illuminati that people talk about, which may or may not exist and may actually exist. Who knows? The so-called Illuminati. And then you have the so-called, not the so-called, the 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 masons the masonic society which now actually doesn't hide its existence anymore but it still doesn't reveal its purpose so the stone masons the free sorry the, the freemasons they're called right and they have chapters or charters or whatever you want to call them across the world including in india um let's let's take a look at what they look like right they even have a website and all that in india so let's see 
Freemasons India, the Grand Lodge of India. So it's a secret society which is not so secret in, anymore, but their purpose, their objectives are still secret. They say that their objective is to create a brotherhood of men and women nowadays also, etc. But their origins are kind of obscure. They seem to have an origin uh, in Judaism or Christianity. It's clearly an Abrahamic origin, a European origin, right? And they have their chapters and societies, lodges, they call them, all across the world, including in India. Let's take a look at the website of the Grand Lodge of India. What And, and many, many uh, prominent Indians have been members of this secret society. And we still don't know what is the purpose of the society. So that is very interesting. So as you can see, there are very prominent Indians and people of Indian birth, like Rudyard Kipling, the great racist poet, and various other very prominent people who somehow are members, have, have been members of the Masonic Lodge, Grand Lodge of India. One wonders why and one wonders what the purpose of this was. But I am not going to speculate about things that I don't know much about. So I'm just telling you that this is the way it is. These are the facts that are well known. And so that's what secret societies are. We know some of them. We Some of them... The real powerful ones may be hidden, but that's what it is. So any major secret society that impacted global geopolitics, we, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, they would be secret. They would not make their existence known. But it's a very interesting topic. And it is not conspiracy theories. These are all facts. These societies do exist. Okay, something else. So two questions we have here about Ayurveda. Kostub says, what do you think is better, Ayurveda or modern science? And Lokesh says, when I typed Ayurveda in Google, the Wikipedia result shows or contains hatred of Ayurveda. The exact words are, the theory and practice of Ayurveda is pseudoscientific. The Indian Medical Association describes Ayurvedic practitioners who claim to practice medicine as quacks. Why so much hatred for Indian origin things? And the same exists for Covaxin as well. Well, let me first speak about Covaxin. Covaxin, the Indian vaccine for the coronavirus, is the safest and most efficacious vaccine that we have across the world for this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Covaxin is the safest one and the most effective one. Better than all the other Moderna and Pfizer and uh, Sinovax and all the other vaccines. And it's safer than all of these vaccines. So first of all, the Indian vaccine is the best vaccine. Many people in the US are clamoring for the introduction of the Indian vaccine there, but that won't be allowed because you know what? Big Pharma wants to make money. And uh, everything in the US is driven by money, including healthcare, including people's lives. No one cares. That's how it is. That's the kind of society you have in the US, right? So the thing about uh, hatred of Ayurveda, it's, you know what? It looks like hatred. It's not really hatred. It is fear. See, Ayurveda is a system that has been around for thousands of years. It has been improved upon gradually over centuries and millennia. And our ancestors, the ancient Indian scientists, medical professionals, etc., from thousands of years ago, they found these various herbs, compounds, other things by a long, exhaustive process of trial and error. And these are all natural substances, natural herbal extracts and compounds and all that, which don't have any side effects because these are naturally occurring substances and, and combinations of substances, right? And they are known to have been very effective in treating various uh, illnesses. 
now if you look at scientific if you look at uh, chinese traditional medicine that is now part of the who's uh, spiel kind of uh, you know in a way they consider it to be mainstream medicine but ayurveda is not because the indian government isn't well hasn't taken much of an initiative in the past even today perhaps uh, there are no institutes of ayurveda proper institutes that uh, bring ayurveda into the 21st century scientific uh, domain and all that so it's still regarded as kind of herbal or tribal medicine or you know pseudo scientific thing and the thing is ayurvedic uh, treatments may take a longer time but they are more effective to treat various illnesses in the west especially in the us everything everybody is on medication you know pharma big pharma is a huge industry it's a huge industry it is extremely lucrative all medications cost a fortune medical insurance costs a fortune it's a huge scam that is being perpetrated on the people of the united states and now it is already also been transferred into india 20 30 years ago medicines used to cost 2 rupees 3 rupees 5 rupees 10 rupees today the same medicines cost hundreds of rupees or thousands of rupees so the whole scam has been transferred into india and the so called indian medical association is part of this let's not mince any words all doctors want to be on the payroll of various pharma companies so that they can make more money it's a it's it is an industry right it's a business they don't they don't want you to be cured they want you to be sick forever so that they can give, keep giving you medicines and so the doctor keeps on earning and the pharma companies keep on earning and ayurveda is a big obstacle to that because ayurveda actually cures your illnesses and it's been known to have been doing that for thousands of years and therefore it's best if ayurveda is demonized and described as severe scientific so that people will stay away from it so that big pharma can keep making money this is the big scam that we are all living today especially since since you know when so that's what i can say now what is better ayurveda or modern science you know ayurveda is a proven system okay now uh, it is always better if you bring the study of ayurveda in a systematic way into the 21st century medical context and you you study it from a modern pharmacological uh perspective right so the various ayurvedic treatments compounds it is always good if you can analyze them from a 21st century scientific uh, biochemical perspective and codify it in 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 a modern sense the way the chinese are doing with traditional chinese medicine so today traditional chinese medicine has given rise to several 21st century treatments for the, for instance uh, late late 20th century early 21st century the artemisin that was discovered as a treatment for malaria that came out of traditional chinese medicine right and there will be so many such treatments that are still hidden within ayurveda which are not being brought to light because it is being demonized in this manner so it is incumbent on the indian government on the indian establishment to uh, to bring ayurveda into the 21st century context and uh, merge ayurveda with the cutting edge latest technology and research that would be the best possible outcome for everyone so that's what i would like to see happen so that in short is is about ayurveda okay there are a couple of comments not exactly questions uh, navin kumar says i am from tamil nadu not everyone in tamil nadu likes periyar that that creature a uh, more percentage people hate hate that guy but politicians only use him for political reasons unfortunately 80% of media in tamil nadu is under the control of dravidian politicians it's just a media propaganda i am an indian I'm a, i will always be indian 
Please read my comment in the next episode. So here we are. I'm reading your comment. Navin, very, uh, very nice to see this. And thank you for expressing your opinion. The second comment is from Indic Renaissance. I'm from Tamil Nadu, India, and not everyone is anti-civilizational degenerates. But yes, subversion is real here. And they keep pushing this Abrahamic narrative and pushing the so-called Tamil identity. But I'm always a Hindu Indian. You know, in the past, until the 1960s, 70s, Tamil Nadu was seen as even more Indian than the rest of India, like North India, etc. More traditionally Indian than the rest of India. Right. That's how Tamil Nadu used to be. And then see what happened, what's happened in the last 30, 40 years. The entire civilizational structure has been uprooted, eradicated. And today you see what comes in the news from Tamil Nadu. You see what's in the news right now. What's trending on Twitter right now. That girl who was forced to commit suicide by missionaries. So Tamil Nadu has been totally deracinated today. Uh, maybe it's not totally deracinated, but the, the majority of the people are not able to express their opinions. And whatever is in the mainstream, in the media, the politicians, etc., they are trying to uh, push an anti-India, soft separatist, anti-Hindu, Hindu-phobic uh, narrative, which, is now, which has now become the mainstream in Tamil Nadu. Every week you see an ancient temple being bulldozed in Tamil Nadu. For what reason? I don't understand. Right. So Tamil Nadu, the politics has become virulently anti-India, anti-Hindu, anti-civilization, anti-culture. And they are trying to push the missionary agenda. It's very clear. Let's say this openly. Right. So that's what's happening. Uh, and it's very unfortunate. And if it continues like this, India is going to fragment. I'm telling you. Because what holds India together, what has been holding India together for 10,000 years is Indian civilization and culture. Which is not Tamil culture or, or, or North Indian culture or whatever. It is simply Indian culture. If you look at the rich history of Tamil Nadu, before this third-rate Dravidian anti-Hindu, anti-Indian parties came into existence. These periarist parties, the ones that uh, worship Bishop Caldwell, these people. You know, politics is all about creating fraction, fragmentation in society. It's all about creating the illusion of oppression. So that they, and, and then you claim that I am, we are the ones who are going to save you. So that's the game these politicians are playing. But if you look at the rich history of the Tamil people, it has been at the vanguard, at the forefront of Indian culture. And the same goes for the entirety of southern India. Not just Tamil Nadu, Kerala also, Karnataka, Andhra, all these places. If you look at the great uh, dynasties in Tamil Nadu, in, in southern India, the Cheras, the Pandyas, the Cholas, uh, and so many more, they have been at the forefront of promoting Indian culture, not just in India, but even way beyond India's shores. So it is disappointing and unfortunate that Tamil Nadu is now at the forefront of this anti-Hindu, anti-civilization movement. It's, it's just sad. And it shows how easy it is to manipulate the minds of people, especially young people. It's so easy to manipulate the, the minds of young people using the education system, the media, the entertainment industry, and, uh, and politics. So that's what we are seeing today. But that also gives you the solution of how we can undo this when the time is right. Okay, Agastya says, uh, I was wondering what are your thoughts about R.C. Majumdar as a source for learning about India's ancient history? Are his books credible and something I can use to further my knowledge on the topic? So R.C. Majumdar, in my opinion, in my experience, has been uh, an excellent historian. Uh, clearly, 
much of what he has written has to be treated with a little bit of caution because it is it is something that was written a very long time ago uh i don't remember exactly when he wrote his great uh, his major works but it would be in the 1940s 50s 60s and latest in the 70s so that's at least 50 years before to today and therefore much of the content of the books that he has written much of that is possibly outdated but much of it is still very relevant for instance every historian in the past has uh, expressed well a belief and and, and uh, a belief in the RN, in, in the in the in the veracity of the aryan invasion theory because that was the prevalent theory at the time and therefore they saw nothing wrong with uh, with, with writing about it as if it is a known fact because it was the accepted wisdom at the time today we know this theory has been totally debunked it's completely incorrect from all angles and yet all of these great writers in the past they they put forth the iron vision theory as a fact as if it's a it's a fact and there are other aspects also in in various parts of ancient texts from 50 years ago 70 years ago which may be outdated today we have better information but yet all of this work that has been done for especially by rc majumdar it is still very valuable because um, if you look at his works about uh, for instance the gupta dynasty the vakataks uh, the uh, the indian influence in southeast asia etc i think there's almost nobody after him who has written about these things in great detail and therefore his works are still very valuable reference works for the, these parts of our history so i think rc majumdar is an excellent source even today for learning about india's ancient history and for learning about india's influence beyond india's shores especially in southeast asia and eastern asia his books are excellent of course you have to keep in mind that this sort of these books were written, written at least 50 years ago so some parts of the books may be outdated and you may have to update your your knowledge from other sources as well so keep that in mind if you keep that in mind and read intelligently you will learn a lot from rc majumdar's work i would from his works especially his uh, 11 or 12 volume work i think 11 volume work history and culture of the indian people i think that's what it's called i think it's an excellent reference work and i think it's something that is still very valuable from the perspective of learning india's history so yes i would certainly recommend his works Anish says the pandemic has forced a majority of the businesses and professions and education to adapt to the online working from home mode of functioning this has reduced the working capital and expenditure for most of the businesses especially those in technology yes in your opinion should those professions and businesses and educational courses which require no practical physical presence continue in the same way of working post the pandemic i think that the world has changed forever uh it's it was called the new normal in 2020 while well, we are living the new normal today in 2022 uh the entire mode of working has changed working from home is here to stay in my opinion uh you know i think if it is done the right way it can even even uh, it can give rise to better productivity as well so i think that many of these businesses professions are going to continue the practice of of uh, working online working from home working from wherever you are and i see nothing wrong with that there are especially in technology in software etc you can work from anywhere in the world and you can all you, you can always collaborate and interface via zoom or whatever whatever uh, mode you have 
and it's just like being in office and you can get all your work done just as well if not better working from home uh so especially in technology this is going to be that way high technology software development and all these things it's going to be there it's going to continue i see nothing wrong with that but there are certain industries etc in which you need to be physically present especially those that are uh, in the engineering domain and other things like that in which case you have to be physically present and you have to create physical products and all that in in which case uh, things won't change much when it comes to education it's a it's a mixed bag so for effective education you need a face to face interface inter- interaction between teachers and students as 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 adults you can deal with the working from home environment looking at a screen and talking to people through a screen but children need a physical presence of a teacher you know of course i have also argued in the past that children can now just ditch <laughs> conventional education and learn everything online that also works but i would say that for young children etc for at least a few years there it it is beneficial to have um an interaction in 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 uh, flesh and blood between teachers and other kids you know so in so in the case of education especially uh primary education up to the third fourth standard maybe it may be best to go back to the old style of uh, sitting in a classroom and working and studying in a classroom of course you need a good education system for that the indian edu- education system is worthless useless so in that case it doesn't really make much of a difference but overall i would say that the world has changed permanently people are going to keep on working from home they're going to keep on working remotely and uh, that's just the way things are going to be especially with the metaverse coming in even working from home maybe like working from office because you may have soon have the presence of your colleagues right there in the room with you even if you are in your uh, bedroom or or living room so things are going to change very fast this decade and uh, it's an evolving situation an evolving world and let's see where it takes us but yes the world has certainly changed deeply and forever what steps can be taken by us as a government as an individual as an entrepreneur as a vc venture capitalist angel investor etc so that more and more deep tech startups emerge from india that can conquer the whole world's technologies so let's take a look at how all these uh, tech startups emerged in the us so it all emerged in this place called silicon valley in california right so, san san jose san francisco that area uh san jose san diego that particular area it's called the uh, silicon valley right so what happened is that all of these technology startups emerged from there lots of tech tech startups there was this entire uh, environment there that you had lots of venture capitalists and angel investors who were looking for uh new companies new startups to invest in and there were lots of these uh, technological uh, graduates tech graduates and all that who were looking to solve problems solve the problems of the nation of the society using t- using technology using computing and emerging technologies so this entire confluence of these young kids who were tech savvy who were comfortable with high technology and who wanted to solve problems and the presence of all these investors etc this confluence created silicon valley so for something like that to be replicated in india 
what needs to be done first of all the government is already doing all the right things to make it easier and easier for businesses to start up so today uh, you have gst in the past you did not have gst so it india was not like one nation it was like a confederation of nations with their own taxes and all that non- nonsense so gst has, has broken all those barrier, barriers secondly we have a uh, UPI payments and all that which has made it very very easy for people to receive payments online on the spot using using just mobile phones so it's going to make credit cards obsolete it's making credit cards obsolete you know so india is essentially on the precipice of a major entrepreneurial entrepreneurial boom india in the next 20 years could be totally different from what we are seeing today if if the right steps continue to be taken so we already are seeing the building blocks being put into place for a major uh, boom in entrepreneurship in tech startups startups etc we also have the startup india program which is generating all these unicorns india has surpassed even china in the number of unicorns it is producing so you see very good uh, steps being taken being taken it is we are still in the infancy of this entire process but in the next 20 years we could see india totally being transformed so what can individuals do individuals youngsters kids they need to be tech savvy today to tra- transform the nation and, the, and to solve the nation's problems you need software you need apps which can do these things of course the government has to do certain things and uh, take care of certain issues but you can solve so many of the world's problems and start with india you can solve so many of india's problems using software using technology so the kids who are uh, teenagers etc today they need to become tech sa- tech savvy learn various uh, programming languages learn how to code apps on whatever platform learn um, uh, learn how to build operating systems all these things you know so become really comfortable with technology and also it's not enough to be good with technology it's not enough to be proficient with technology you also need to understand business you, you need to understand the economy you need to understand personal finances the finances of running a startup how to scale a startup how to get investment how to get funding how not to get scammed all those things so this is also very important you know uh financial literacy so as individuals you need to be tech savvy and you need to be financially literate really financially literate and savvy that's what needs to happen entrepreneurs need to obviously uh, make all the right moves and uh, learn how to run a business efficiently lean startup all that you know yeah. so all that stuff you need to learn as vc as venture capitalists angel investors you need to be on the lookout for agile lightweight startups run by youngsters that have the potential to solve major problems in the country that's what brings value to society if you want to become rich you have to provide value to society at a large scale if you do that you will become rich so it's a win win situation for you as an entrepreneur and for society as a whole and it is for the vcs the angel investors to identify such startups that have the potential to solve big problems and then fund them so you need to have the right vision and you know you need to be able to identify the talent so all that is what vcs and angel investors need to look out for and as a government please end corruption in this country
India, the entire governance of India, the low-level politics of India, it all runs on corruption. Let's not mince words. Let's not hide facts. The entire country runs on corruption. So much of the country's wealth goes into the wrong pockets. And it is the wealth of the of the individual citizen, you know. So in the government of India needs to find a way of, of starting to, to, to start to address this problem of corruption and to weed out all the inefficiencies in the bureaucratic system, in the bureaucracy of India, and to make doing business even easier than it is right now. So India is doing really well on, on the global uh, rankings of ease of doing business. But why can't India be in the top 10 in the world? Why not? That would totally unleash the potential of India. So these are the things that the government can do. So these are a bunch of things. So India is still in, in the infancy of this process. But there's tremendous potential, which we are already seeing. And the government is doing a lot of the right, right things. We would like to see that being built upon by the government. And all round, you can do lots of reforms and totally transform the entrepreneurial and business landscape in India and unleash the true potential of Indians. Indians have this immense entrepreneurial spirit. It's been there for thousands of years, right? So that's what needs to be unleashed. Right now, India is a nation in shackles. It is chained. It is still a nation in chains. Break the chains and unleash the true potential of India. You will see startups left, right and center. India's kids are brilliant. Just give them a chance. Give them the opportunity to use the brilliance to solve India's problems. So that's what the government needs to do. Okay, Arnav says, if the British captured India by defeating the Marathas in the Anglo-Maratha wars, then how was the last Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah Zafar, still in India until his death in 1862? Was he in power and what was his role in the 1857 revolt or rather war of independence? This is a good question. So, as we know, the Marathas had reconquered India, freed India from the Turks by the middle of the uh, 18th century. And it is from the Marathas that the British captured power and captured uh, control of India. So, the British did not save India from the Turks. The Marathas had, had already freed India from the Turks. The Maratha Empire was from southern India, from large parts of southern India, all the way up to southern Afghanistan. So that the Turkic uh, occupation of India had been annihilated by the, by the Marathas. And yet, and yet you had a Mughal emperor in, in India. Now this Mughal emperor who was in power in Delhi was essentially the mayor of Delhi. And even less than the mayor of, the, of Delhi, he was the mayor of the Red Fort or whatever place he was inhabiting. That's it. He had no real power. It was just a titular position of the Mughal emperor. A Mughal emperor with no power whatsoever, even in Delhi, that's what it was. Bahadur Shah Zafar was nothing more than the head of a household who had power only within his household. He did not even have power of life and death or policy making or anything in the city of Delhi. So that's how he was. He was a powerless, toothless emperor, emperor only in name. But for some reason, the Marathas allowed the... Uh, institution of the Mughal emperor to continue somehow for, for some reason. So this is something that is, uh, I am not sure why they did that. Maybe I need to bring in some expert in Maratha history and we can perhaps have a discussion on that. So that may be something I will do in the future. But what I can say is that the so-called Mughal emperor was an emperor only in name 
king of your own castle king of your 2 bhk apartment that sort of thing so that's what he was okay and bahadur shah zafar was the so called last mughal emperor of india even though he had no power his role in the 1857 war of independence was as the titular figure head uh, for some reason the uh, the people the the, the fighters the the Uh, the indians who were fighting the british and trying to win independence they declared him as their titular emperor or figurehead or something just just in name he did not really have the uh, ability to issue orders to them and they would not obey him it was just in name right and uh, then as we know for whatever uh, bunch of reasons we lost that war of independence 1857 and then there was this terrible genocide at least 10 million indians were killed by the british in the next 5 10 years as an act of revenge and this fellow bahadur shah zafar he was uh, sent to rangoon i think as a sort of exile and that's where he died and that's where he is buried so that is the story in short of bahadur shah zafar an emperor only in name and nothing more Wisdom Bro says, "Who will reach faster to their ancient civilizational roots, India, North Europe, or Eastern Europe?" So I would say that the cultures that are the closest to, to their roots have the potential to reach their ancient civilizational roots the fastest. So, in the case of Europe, uh, they are completely deracinated. They have lost all contact with their ancestral. civilizational cultural roots which is the old indo-european culture so the culture 2000 years ago in europe in various parts of europe was very similar to the ancient uh, indian culture of that time the same gods were worshiped the same values were espoused the same principles were there and you had a lot of uh, local manifestations of this vast culture so that's what you had in in europe and then it was all uprooted wiped out destroyed by christianity as we know very well it's been extensively documented so europe has been divorced or 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 deracinated from its roots for about at least at least 1000 years depending on where you are in eastern europe in the slavic world uh, this happened more recently maybe 5 600 years ago so the slavic world is probably closer to its uh, indo european roots then let's say western europe the nordic countries the the so called uh, former viking countries the scandinavian countries they are i would say in some ways closer to their roots than western europe the vatican all that all that region right because christianity was introduced later in these regions when it comes to india we to a large extent in some way in some form or the other are still very much close to our civilizational roots many of us still practice in some form some broken form our ancient culture which is nowadays called hinduism which is actually sanatan dharma in its various uh, manifestations and it is also practiced in large parts of asia in some form or the other it is called buddhism in some places it is called something else somewhere else but it is practiced in various forms in this region so it is much easier for india and those parts of asia to revert to their civilizational roots uh, compared to various other parts of the world like europe but uh, it is also possible that hinduism itself will be wiped out of india in the next 50 or 100 years because we are seeing signs of that the government is 
the governance system is deeply hindu phobic hindus have no right to control the, their own places of worship the temples uh, the laws the practices the policies are all hindu phobic in tamil nadu every week a new temp uh, one more temple is being bulldozed ancient temples are being bulldozed and so on and so forth so india is actually the world's most hindu phobic country if it continues like this in the next 50 years there will be no more hinduism it's quite possible and as you can see people are so deracinated deracinated especially people who go through the indian education system they, they are ashamed of being indians ashamed of being hindus ashamed of hinduism ah oh, hinduism backward misogynistic patriarchal um, primitive all that right so that's the impression they have that's what their teachers teach them so that's the state of india today so who knows what's going to happen in the future one hopes that uh, that indian culture will undergo renaissance one hopes that would be good for the world as a whole but let's see the future is still up for grabs right now ayan chakrabarty says uh, what what was cleanliness spreading information fashion in ancient india like so let us talk about cleanliness okay i will take the cleanliness part of the question so if we look at um let's let's just take a look at hard data so i recently was talking to dr neeraj rai uh, his podcast is coming up in a couple of days on this channel so uh, dr neeraj rai has access to lots of ancient human remains from across the length and the breadth of india and he was telling me that when you examine these remains various ancient india indian human remains ancient skeletons of people from various uh, a uh, chronological time frames of india and various geographical parts of india what you see is very striking that all of these ancient human remains are in excellent physical condition excellent health you don't find signs of diseases illnesses lifestyle problems or any such thing you will see this invariably across india north south east west all across india the remains are in excellent physical condition they they may have died of old age or whatever but for whatever age they died at they are in excellent condition so what you find is that the health of people of ordinary people in ancient india was excellent exceptionally good compared to what you see in other parts of the world if you see ancient roman skeletons ancient skeletons in the celtic regions of europe for instance ancient viking skeletons and so on you see all kinds of pathologies if you look at the um, if if you find a skeleton you can actually sample the soil in the abdominal part of the of the uh, of the skeleton and you can uh, do a pathological analysis and see what kind of bacteria etc were there in the abdominal region in the digestive tract of the person and you can find you can determine if that person had any uh, parasites like worms and all that and you find that people in ancient europe invariably had digestive systems riddled with worms tape worms round worms and what not you don't find that in india so you find that india's cleanliness hygiene health was exceptionally good and why is it so it's because of indian culture indian culture so today what you have in india is the is that life is very fast you wake up and you rush out of bed and you brush your teeth in 3 seconds grab a cup of coffee and you're out of the house going to office and you work 15 hours a day or whatever 12 hours and then you come home and crash and sleep that's all you do so there is no time to take care of yourself today in india especially if you are a young professional or whatever right but in ancient india life was very different 
India was a very settled society, very prosperous society, and cleanliness was paramount. If you look at the rituals of cleanliness and all that, you see that Indians put ancient Indians put a very high premium on cleanliness. You could not do things before you took a bath and did all the procedure, all that in the morning of of cleansing yourself, brushing uh, your teeth with uh, acacia twigs and all that. So cleanliness is something that was paramount in India. In in it, it is I think essentially India taught the world what cleanliness and hygiene is, and you see signs of this all across. Even if you go back five thousand years before today in the Saptasindhu region, you will find that Indian cities in the Saraswati Sindhu region had excellent drainage systems, better than what you find today in modern India, right? And India is the civilization that developed the flush toilet. India had dentistry. India had everything. So cleanliness and health and hygiene is something that was exceptional in India, and that once again tells you that India is the true cradle of civilization. You know, uh, so that's what I can say in brief. Umesh Prasad says in uh, one of your podcasts, you spoke about cyber warfare, and that it could be the form of World War Three. In that case, what would be its impact on underdeveloped or developing countries? Good question. So what I said is that cyber warfare is one of the new domains of warfare today. So you have dom- uh, various domains of warfare that transcend what traditional warfare has all been about. Traditionally, warfare has been about land. Sea and air. That's 21st century or early 20. Uh, that's 20th century and early 21st century warfare. War on land, war at sea. That's the navy and war in the air. That's the air force. Today you have all all kinds of other domains. Cyber warfare is one such domain of warfare. Then you have space. Space is now a new domain of warfare, and there is psychological warfare and so much, so much more. So all of this will come together in a big synthesis whenever the next big war is fought. So cyber warfare is going to be one of those. Now, in an underdeveloped country, uh, the governance system and all will still be quite primitive. It will not be digitized. It will not be computerized. And therefore, there's no point of attacking such a country with a cyber attack because they don't have any cyber capabilities or infrastructure to speak about, right? So underdeveloped and developed country and and developing countries won't really be a major uh, factor in a big war like World War Three. World War Three, if it happens, we don't want it to happen ever. But if a major war happens in the future, it's going to be between the biggest powers in the world, the top powers, the great powers. Let's say the U.S., China, Russia, India, EU, perhaps. Right, Japan. These are major powers. India also, I would say, it's one of the major powers, whether you like it or not. It is in some ways. So these are the countries that would be involved in a major war. A small country like Nepal would would be a bystander. A small country like Bangladesh, or or New Zealand, or Paraguay, or whatever you know, or 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 uh, Ghana, what or whatever. These countries will be bystanders. They'll be just. Uh, watching them from the sidelines. They will not be involved in a big war. It is the major powers that will be involved in a big war. And it is these countries that will take that will uh, take the major brunt, the major impact of these of uh, whatever cyber warfare is unleashed on each other. 
so the the impact on underdeveloped and developing countries won't be very significant those countries will just be bystanders they'll be watching and seeing what's happening that's all so yeah that's what i can say okay hypothetically in your view if india were to go against the indus water treaty and force pakistan to concede and make a drastic policy and leadership changes force them to shift alliances it's prudent to break bend your opponent when they're down diplomacy and dialogue is wasted as they are cornered this very moment what geopolitical repercussions should we prepare to face if any so the thing is this no country needs to adhere to any treaty that is unfair and the indus water treaty is one of the most lopsided treaties in human history i think about 80% of the waters of the uh, drainage system in the subtasindu region is allocated to pakistan and that's what india willingly signed away our great great magnificent magnanimous statesman of a prime minister shri jawaharlal nehru he decided that we should give away 80% plus of the waters of this region to pakistan we will only take 20% because we are so magnanimous right we want india to grow at 2% 1% per year so that's the kind of individual mr the great shri nehru ji was the pandit ji and that's what uh, we are currently uh, in this this is the treaty that still holds it was brokered by the world bank or imf or something i'm not sure look it up look it up please i may be marginally off in that but uh, the thing is this no nation can be forced to comply with a treaty that is unfair to it look at the chinese they had this treaty with the uk the hong kong treaty uh one nation two systems they broke the treaty this was supposed to be a treaty that was supposed to last a certain number of years or maybe in perpetuity i'm not sure look it up but they broke it recently they said that we don't we no longer believe in this treaty we this treaty will no longer be honored by us and what could the british do nothing they could just sit and protest feebly so if you are a strong power a strong military power a strong diplomatic and economic power then you can do whatever you want you can break treaties india i would say should not um uh, keep on uh you know complying with the indus water treaty but to go against the treaty you need to first build up the infrastructure to divert the waters and use them in a proper way so for that you need dams you need a system of dams in the region that can divert the waters and store them on indian soil and deny the use of all that water to pakistan has india done that in the past 70 years nothing even in the past 7 8 years we have not built a single dam in this region so all we can do is talk that we will we will all we can do is threaten you know empty words that you know we may not in the future uh, adhere to this treaty but it's empty words unless and until you have the capability to divert the waters at any given point in time then your threats are no longer empty then your threats threats can be turned into actions so i would say that india needs to first build a number of dams on these rivers which would enable india to divert the waters 
then we can actually go ahead and do what is best for us from our national interest perspective, which is stop giving Pakistan 80% of the water for free. Right. I mean, the Chinese control so many of the rivers today, uh, the rivers that go into, into India, into Pakistan, into Nepal, into Bangladesh, into Southeast Asia. And they don't have any such treaty with anybody, which means that they can do whatever they want and the rest of the world has to just, well, uh, grin and bear it. So why can't India also do the same to Pakistan? So for that, we need to first build the infrastructure, the dams on the rivers, and then we can do whatever we want. And if we are powerful enough, then there will be no geopolitical reper repercussions. If you are a weak country, small economy, $3 trillion, and then we do such big moves, then you may face problems from other countries, especially from China who may try to arm twist India in a variety of ways because Pakistan is a Chinese client state. So India needs to become a much more powerful country first and in the same time India needs to build up the infrastructure of dams in this region. So once India is a powerful economy, let's say $10 trillion economy with a military capability that is proportional to that, then India will be able to do these things without facing any geopolitical repercussions. So it's a long-term game. We need to build up our economy and military in the meanwhile and build up the dam infrastructure. Okay, Ghost Coder says, most of the scientists believe that consciousness has nothing to do with quantum physics. As a physicist yourself, what are your views on the double slit experiment and the observer effect? Okay, so first of all, I don't agree that uh, most scientists or physicists believe that consciousness has nothing to do with quantum physics. Uh, so let me let's let's uh, elaborate a little bit about that. So what is the double slit experiment? What is the observer effect? So the double slit experiment is essentially when you have a target and you have a gun that shoots particles at the target. Let's say you're shooting electrons at a target at a screen. You're shooting electrons at a screen, and between your electron gun and the screen, you put uh, a double slit. So it's a it's it's a it's a it's a screen with two slits in it. So when you shoot you the electrons at your at your big target, in the way there is the screen with two small slits. So most of the electrons will hit the screen and bounce back. And some of the electrons, if you aim them properly, will go through one of the two slits. And what you find is that when you shoot electrons like this at the target through these two slits. On the uh, target, you find an interference pattern, the kind of pattern you would find if the electron was not a particle, but a wave. So if you have water waves going through two slits, then after they emerge from the slits, they interfere with, with each other and form an interference pattern. The same sort of thing you see on the screen, the target, right? When you shoot electrons at the double slit. And you find this even if you shoot one single electron at a time which tells you that these electrons are interfering with themselves. The electron is interfering with itself. So that is the weird thing about quantum physics. Now, if you place a detector just before the slit, which is called a which way detector to see which way the electron is going, then it stops behaving like a wave. It starts behaving like a particle and you no longer find the interference pattern on the screen. So this is called the observer effect. The moment you make an observation, of the electron before it goes through the slits, it's the act of making the observation 
transforms the electron from a wave into a particle. So in quantum physics, what you have is that particles are essentially probability distributions. They don't have any, any clear property or even position until you make an observation of the particle. That's when it resolves and focuses into one in, in one place. And that's where it becomes physically significant. Until you make an observation, the particle doesn't even exist in one place. It, it may exist in multiple, multiple places at once. So that is the thing about quantum physics. So there are a number of interpretations of, of quantum physics. There is the Copenhagen interpretation, which says that a measurement causes the collapse of the wave function. And there is no consciousness involved in that. Then there is the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation, which says that consciousness is integral. It is, it is fundamental to the uh, to the collapse of the wave function. So it is a consciousness, it is the presence of a conscious observer that causes the collapse of the wave function. And then you have the uh, Hugh, Hev Hugh Everett interpretation, the many worlds interpretation, which says that your observation which you're making is only in this universe, but the other probabilities are for other universes, parallel universes. So every time you make an observation, the universe branches off into two branches and and that's what happens. So, so, so that's the many worlds interpretation. So there are a number of interpretations of quantum physics. One of which, the quantum, uh, the von Neumann-Wigner interpretation says that consciousness is central to the collapse of the wave function. And there are experiments in which you make a measurement, but you don't see it. For instance, you can record a quantum state as one of the uh, uh, energy levels of an atom. So no human observer actually observes this. It is simply recorded in the energy levels of an atom. And yet this causes the collapse of the wave function. So then how does that work now if, if uh, no consciousness is accessing it? So one of the uh, philosophical uh, arguments is that the universe itself has a consciousness, a greater consciousness. And even if a human conscious uh, observer doesn't see it, the universal consciousness records the observation and, and makes takes note of it. And that's why the wave function collapses. So these are all philosophical arguments to a great extent. What this tells us is that we don't understand quantum mechanics properly. There may be hidden variables in the theory, or we may even have super determinism, which means that everything is determined from the very beginning, from the very uh, instant of the Big Bang itself. So we still don't know. Quantum mechanics is a big mystery. So what I would say is that we don't know. <laughs> I, you know, because we still don't have enough information, and uh, quantum mechanics, especially the foundations of quantum mechanics, are a field of very active research and nobody has any answers today. There are strong beliefs among, the, there are these different camps that physicists are now divided in, into. Some believe that the Copenhagen interpretation, the shut up and calculate interpretation is the correct interpretation that has been the mainstream view for a very long time. Today, the many worlds interpretation has a lot of uh, supporters. Many, many physicists believe in that. The von Neumann-Wigner uh, interpretation also has its, its supporters and proponents. So you know what? It's all a matter of personal belief right now. What really appeals to you, what you really believe deep inside. But from a physics perspective, we still don't know. So that's what I can say. As of today, we still don't know for sure what quantum mechanics is telling us and what lies 
deeper at a deeper level in quantum mechanics. We still don't understand that. Okay, Ritesh says, is it possible that the three-dimensional space that we experience itself expanded out of the point mass at the time of the Big Bang and there was nothing as space before the before in the larger universe? The entire universe, see, the, the best theory that we have of the origin of the universe is the so-called Big Bang theory, right? So according to this theory, everything that we observe was inside that point mass that the universe was. So at the very beginning, the entire universe that we can observe and whatever lies beyond that also was all compressed into a single point, a so-called singularity. All of space, all of time, all of matter, all of energy was compressed into that small, into that one singularity, that little point. So everything that we have today, it all came out of that point. The entire universe was compressed into a small single point. Right. So there was no larger universe beyond that. That was all. That was the that was all there was in the, in the in the universe, according to the best theory that we have. So it is not possible. The theory says that everything came out of that. All of space, all of time, all of matter, all of energy, everything. Dark matter, dark energy, whatever we call it, it all came out of that one single point, which is the Big Bang singularity. According to loop quantum gravity, it may not have been a singularity. It may have been a quantum, the smallest quantum of space-time. But well, these are different theories. We still don't know which we, which, uh, which of these ideas is correct. But the best theory is the Big Bang theory. And that's what we know from it. Uh, what would have been the difference if the French ruled instead of the British? Well, see, it's like this. The British were able to rule India because they controlled... Okay, let's go to the map. Uh, so this is the map of the world. You know where India is. It's here. If you can see my mouse pointer. And this is England, the United Kingdom over here. Now, this small island, this country here, was able to control India, occupy India for a couple of centuries and plunder everything of value out of it, right? So they were able to rule India for a couple of hundred years, first through the East India Company and then through the uh, British crown itself. Now, see the dif distance between the UK and India. It's about seven, eight, uh, it's about 7,000 kilometers. That's how far this place is. So how were they able to rule India from so far away? It's because they were able to control the entire uh, region between their country and India. They were essentially ruling over the entire region. They had uh, the infrastructure in place. They had the supply chains in place. Uh, they had diplomatic uh, relations in place which facilitated facilitated everything they were doing they had the system of supplies regular supplies ships and land routes and all that in place so that is the reason why the british were able to rule india for so long and the french also wanted to uh, take over india napoleon was very ambitious he first conquered egypt he tried to conquer egypt with the purpose with the overall long term objective of eventually displacing the British from India and occupying and colonizing India. So even Napoleon wanted to do that. But he was not able to place the infrastructure. He was not able to create the infrastructure and put it in place that would have allowed him 
to rule India from so far away. So that's where he failed. But in case the French had been able to do it, then not just India, but the entire world would be speaking French today instead of English. So that is the difference. We would have been speaking French today and the French were just as brutal as the English. Okay, They also perpetrated all kinds of atrocities in India. They also destroyed temples and built churches over them. It's well known. So the French would have been just as brutal, just as barbaric as the British. They were all animated by the same culture and the same objectives of plundering and looting a peaceful country. So there would not have been much difference for at the end of the day for the ordinary Indian citizen. The only difference is that we would be speaking French today. Bonjour, bonsoir, blah, 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 all that. So that's the only difference. And not just India, but half the world mostly would have been speaking French. Okay, Ishwara Moody says, Indians had influential trade with East Africa in the medieval period, but why is it that today we have negligible trade influence in East Africa? What are the barriers to this? So it is well known that India has had a presence in East Africa for centuries, maybe thousands of years. We know that there is a presence of Indian cattle, the Indian Indus Valley Zebu cattle in Africa for thousands of years. It is known that the, these cattle were present in Egypt about 4,000 years before today. And there was an even older wave of integration, introgression of Indian cattle into Africa, which happened about 10,000 years ago. So India has had, and, and these cattle, they don't go on for a walk on their own. They don't migrate on their own. They only migrate with humans. So this tells you that Indians have had a presence in Africa for about 10,000 years at least, in Eastern Africa, right? And if you look at the culture of East Africa, if you look at the, uh, if you look at, see, this is East Africa here, starting from Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Madagascar, all the way to Southern Africa. So this entire Eastern coast of Africa, if you go there, and if you look at the culture there, you will see very, very strong influences of Indian culture there. In the cuisine, if you look at the cuisine of Eastern Africa, it is very similar to Indian cuisine in a variety of ways. Uh, the kind of spices they use, the turmeric, the all the Indian spices they use, the way of cooking, the way of the preparation, it's very Indian. You can see India right in there. If you look at the dressing, uh, the kind of clothing they wear, you can see influences from India, uh, from Western India, from Gujarat, uh, especially in Eastern Africa. And even the genetics may be deeply influenced by India. So you see all of this in East Africa, which shows that India has had very ancient links with East Africa for a very long time, at least a thousand years, most likely about 10,000 10, years. So what happened? Why do we have nothing, no influence there today? Well, because India was enslaved for the past thousand years. It's very simple. The answer is very simple. Why did India lose its influence in East Africa? Why did India lose its influence in Southeast Asia in the past thousand years? Because India was enslaved. The past 1,000 years of our history have been the millennium of humiliation, the millennium of enslavement. We were first enslaved and occupied by the Turks and then by the Europeans, the British. They destroyed India's economy. They destroyed India's culture, civilization. They destroyed India's architecture, temples, everything, and reduced India to a rootless, rootless, deracinated country that it is today. A people, a, a nation of people with low standards of nation, nation of people with very low confidence, right? And if you are a nation with low standards, low confidence, 
no understanding of your past or history, then you will have no influence anywhere and nobody will respect you. So that's what happened. And that's why we have negligible influence there today. And what happened in Africa also is that Africa itself was enslaved by the <clears throat> Arabs, first of all. So you had the, the Islamic slave trade that happened in Africa, which is not documented at all. It was a terrible, terrible period. And lots and lots of Africans were enslaved and taken off and carted off like animals to the Arabic countries, to Central Asia, etc. Some of them survived, most of them died. You don't see any African origin people there today, which shows what happened to those to these unfortunate slaves. So uh, because of this slave trade, much of the culture of Africa, especially Eastern Africa, was totally destroyed, annihilated. And then you had the European colonization, which destroyed whatever was left of Africa. It impoverished Africa. It destroyed everything that was left of African culture, of African civilization. And everything of value was sucked out of Africa. All mineral resources, all wealth, all gold, everything was sucked out of Africa by the Europeans. And every problem that exists in Africa today is a consequence of the European destruction of Africa. Right? And that totally eradicated whatever was left of India's influence in East Africa and other parts of Africa. So that's what happened. All of this is a consequence of the past 1000 years of depredations in India, in Africa, by, by, these, uh, by these colonial powers. Okay, uh, the next question is, you said that Chinggis Khan, the great Mongol conqueror, refused to invade India. But as we see his empire, he conquered the whole of Afghanistan and more, more than half of Pakistan and also some parts of Burma and Arunachal. Your views also in Alauddin Khilji's brutal, brutal reign, Mongols invaded India six times. Okay, see, the video I made is about why Chinggis Khan refused to invade India. It has nothing to do with what happened afterwards. So let's not talk about what happened afterwards, what the later Mongols did. Let's talk about Genghis Khan and his policy. So like you say, he did conquer the whole of Afghanistan. You are absolutely right. He conquered Afghanistan, which is here. He conquered significant portions of present-day Pakistan, which is right. And this happened in the 13th century. Uh, so at that time, Afghanistan was India's Gandhar province and Pakistan was just Western India. Today, these are separate countries, but in the past, it was all part of India. So you are right that he conquered significant parts of India. Now, when you talk about Arunachal Pradesh and Burma, no, that is not correct. He did not ever venture into Arunachal Pradesh or Burma. Chinggis Khan did not ever go into those, those regions. But he did conquer the entirety of Afghanistan and significant parts of what is now called Pakistan. So, then how can I claim that he refused to conquer India? So, let's understand something. Let us understand something. The parts of India that he conquered in his pursuit of the coward Jalaluddin Khwarezmi, those parts of India were culturally no longer Indian. Afghanistan was already way, way, way transformed. Its culture was eradicated. 
and by that time afghanistan was already fully islamized and turkicized and the parts of pakistan present day pakistan that chinggis khan conquered again had already to a large extent been totally culturally and religiously transformed right so the parts of india that he conquered were the parts of india that had already been uh, transformed culturally into something that was not indian at all right but he stopped at the indus river sindhu river and he refused to go further even though jalaluddin escaped and crossed the river alone leaving his women folk behind chinggis khan said it doesn't matter he is done he's destroyed i have destroyed his army i have destroyed him as a person he is no longer going to matter and i don't want to go further into india because i have no enmity with the people of india and i've given the reasons why he refused to conquer india you can look at the, the, the that video but the parts of india that chinggis khan did conquer were actually no longer culturally or civilizationally indian so that in a way tells you that there was a cultural and civilizational reason also why he he refused to go further because he did not want to spill the blood of people who practiced indian culture and religion because he clearly had some sort of respect for that and he did not have a resp- the, the the same respect for the other culture which he nearly wiped out so that's what i can say that's oh, these are just facts <clears throat> okay saurabh says why don't why didn't linguists linguists linguistic researchers work hard together and try to decipher the indus valley script as it may be a foundation to other scripts like brahmi as some people point out the resemblance between some of these signs of the scripts you know what it's because they have had, never had any interest in resolving this issue because if you try to if you succeed in deciphering the indus script it's going to point towards sanskrit i know lots of people are going to say no 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 it is tamil it is dravidian nonsense there is zero evidence for that zero evidence whatsoever but there are clear similarities between the indus valley saraswati valley script the the symbols of the script and brahmi letters there are clear similarities between brahmi and indus valley symbols script symbols right and this has been remarked upon by various researchers including uh, let's say dr subhash kak you can look up his articles he has remarked upon that and he has actually in a way deciphered uh, a passage or or uh, or a number of a sequence of 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 uh, symbols in the indus valley script and turns out to be sanskrit so if if uh, these linguists go ahead and do what they are paid to do and they discover that this is sanskrit then it is going to destroy whatever arguments these linguists have been making of the aryan invasion right see the aryan invasion theory is the foundation it is the bedrock upon which all the breaking india forces uh do their propaganda they want to say that india is a nation that has been conquered by ancient white skinned aryans and all the people of north india and and western india are the descendants of this evil invaders and hinduism is foreign to india sanskrit is foreign to india these are invasive uh this is an invasive language invasive culture invasive religion india needs to be freed of hinduism and sanskrit and all that 
essentially this is just a way of abrahamizing in india so the aryan invasion narrative the aryan invasion myth or migration myth tourism myth whatever you want to call it it is the foundation of all these claims and if the indus valley script the saraswati valley script is deciphered it will put this lie to it will kill the lie once and for all so they don't want this to happen and today india's academia is controlled by india's enemies the problem in india today is that we have handed over our education system to the enemies of indian culture and civilization we have handed over the media to the enemies of indian culture and civilization we have handed over the entertainment industry to the enemies of india's culture and civilization but the worst thing is the academic system the education system so everything a child learns is anti india anti anti hinduism anti everything anti indian culture so if this script is deciphered it will be a terrible fatal blow to all the claims these people make right and that's why they are unwilling to do this so what needs to happen is that we need to uh do this linguistic research from scratch a priori by first of all discarding all the assumptions that linguists have made in the past we need a bunch of young linguists in their 20s ideally with a proper grounding in the scientific method and they need to start with uh start uh analyzing all of this from scratch and if you want to have a foundation in the principles of linguistics you can start with the grammar of panini and we can also have a good grounding in tamil grammar for instance just for comparative purposes and this entire process needs to be done from scratch from a scientific perspective factual data driven perspective not based on all kinds of colonial assumptions so if you do that if you bring a bunch of bright young minds together 20 30 people you give them sufficient funding you give them a good salary and you give them 5 10 years they're going to crack it they're going to crack it very easily and you can see clear similarities between this ancient script and the brahmi script for instance so it's it's a matter of time you know it's just that these people are unwilling to do it so that's the big problem in india today uh sunny says according to you which is the best form for any ruler to rule what is the best form of governance is what he is saying centralized or decentralized because in ancient india we have seen the mauryans mauryan empire which was centralized and the gupta empire which was decentralized and both of them were excellent i am puzzled about the centralization and decentralization please explain it the guptas were never decentralized no empire that rules over an enormous land mass like india can ever be decentralized if you are too decentralized you you no longer rule right so if you look at the form of governance either in the mauryan era or the gupta era during skandagupta or um, samudragupta kumaragupta etc it was a strongly centralized system of governance of course there was delegation of authority to regional governors for instance uh, let's take the example of the great uh, samudragupta the great conqueror samudragupta who who reunified india 
under Indian rule. So he went on a lifelong military campaign. He conquered every single kingdom, etc. There was in India and unified everything under his empire. And his policy was very simple. For instance, he had a powerful navy. He went all the way down south and conquered most of southern India as well. He defeated all the local kings and then he reinstated them. So he reinstated these kings as his vassals. The agreement, the arrangement was very simple. You guys are being reinstated as kings. You will continue to rule as you have always ruled. But the condition is very simple. You are ruling on my behalf. I am your overlord. I am the supreme Maharaja Dhiraj of India. I am the emperor of India. You are ruling on my behalf. And every year you will collect taxes and send me some taxes. So that was the thing. So that was in a way hands-off ruling, but it was still very centralized. Because all of these kings, they would have representatives of the ambassador overseeing them. And everything was transparent to the, to the emperor. And these kings who would be ruling independently, supposedly, would still be answerable 24 by 7 by 365 to the emperor. And they could not implement any policy without the express approval and consent of the emperor. So it was delegation of power, but it was still a very strong centralized rule. So in India today, they talk about federalism. India has a very good federal structure. There is a lot of delegation of power to the states. You know what? India is a very weak country today. There are states where India, they, where the central government's writ doesn't even properly run ni anymore. Look at certain states. Well, I'm not naming anybody. <laughs> but there are certain states where the prime minister is not even safe in. If he goes there, he's not even safe physically. Right? And there are, there are other states where the borders are open and all kinds of foreigners, no, foreigners are allowed to come in and change the demographics. So this federal structure, this decentralized structure is weakening India from within. India has become a very soft state, very weak state because of, the, because of the structure. And this structure was put in place by the British during the transfer of power in 1947 to keep India weak. They never wanted India to become powerful again. And we are continuing what they have given us. How, how incredible is it? How many years has it been since our so-called independence? Seven decades? We are still slavishly following the orders the British gave us. So, I am very clear about this. A country as large as India needs very strong central rule. Decentralization is the death of a large, of an enormous country like India. It will not last long if it stays decentralized the way it is today. Okay, uh, what do you think about China deploying war robots and remote control vehicles which carry machine guns and in the LAC, the line of actual control? So India and China have an enormous de undemarcated border, thousands of kilometers long. And one hears news reports that the Chinese have deployed certain robotic uh, machines, remote controlled uh, vehicles with machine guns, etc. at the LAC. Well, it is inevitable that the future of warfare is going to go in this direction. You're going to have autonomous systems, autonomous killing systems in war in the future. You're going to have robots. You're going to have drones that 
operate autonomously without human inputs. These drones will loiter in the air and they will decide whom to kill based on algorithms without any human inputs at all. So that is the future of warfare. Like I have said many times, it doesn't matter anymore how brave your army is. When you are fighting robots who have no fear, your bravery is pointless. It's useless. And many people disagree with me. Well, feel free to disagree. But this this is my perspective. The future is going to be about technology. You may have the bravest soldiers in the world, but if your technological level is less advanced than that of your adversary, you are doomed. So what do I think about what the Chinese are doing? First of all, I don't know how good their technology is. Everything they do is called psyops, psychological operations. They're just trying to psych you out. So first of all, uh, the Chinese technology still isn't that good. What I would say is that we should develop our own robotics, our old, our own autonomous killing machines. Right? Develop um, these robotic machines and deploy swarms of these robots on the on the LSC, in the air, underwater, everywhere. We have to embrace high technology. We have to embrace 21st century cutting-edge technology. Otherwise, we'll be left behind. So the Chinese understand this. I, I believe India is also, uh, <clears throat> nowadays, in the past few years, focusing on high technology. We have certain uh, UAV, etc. programs, U, UV programs also, underwater uh, autonomous vehicles. So these things are being developed in India as well and we need to deploy them and we need to make sure that they are better than those of our adversaries. That's what India needs to do. Anish says, modern science is majorly dependent on observations to record data and to come up with theories and explanations. Doesn't it do injustice to reality? That is, phenomena taking place which aren't observable to humans will never be considered. Knowing half the truth is more dangerous than not knowing the truth. How can modern science tackle this shortcoming of itself? So, you know, um, let's let's go back to a different time period. Let's go back 5,000 years before today. Uh, when we had this phase of our civilization called the Saraswati Sindhu phase of civilization. So this was a highly urbanized phase of our civilization. You had multi-storied buildings, you had these well-planned cities, excellent drainage systems, high technology, uh, seafaring uh, culture we had, very high technology ports and harbors and all that. How did we develop this? We developed this with science and technology. And the science that we had at that time, 4,000, 5,000 years before today, was the modern science of that time. Correct? Now, do you think that in the modern science of that time, our ancestors included things that could not be observed? Invisible or, or unobservable phenomena? No. We in India have, the, have had the world's longest and oldest scientific tradition. Pure science I'm talking about. I am not talking about philosophy or spirituality. I am talking about pure science. We have had the world's oldest, longest and most advanced scientific and mathematical tradition. And this was pure science. In Indian pure science also, 
we did not uh, include unobservable phenomena and unphysical objects. Right. Our scientists also were pure scientists. They did not mix philosophy or spirituality with science. Otherwise, India would not have been so advanced. To be an advanced civilization, you have to focus on material progress apart from other kinds of progress. Cultural, spiritual, philosophical, all that happens. But first of all, to be the most advanced civilization, you have to focus on material progress. And material progress can only happen through pure science. What is the definition of science? Science is the study of physical objects and physical observable phenomena, nothing else. That is the hard boundary of science. And that's what our ancestors used to make India the world's most advanced civilization. So I have nothing against uh, people doing research in unobservable, unphysical phenomena, uh, talking about things like the soul, atma, spirit, all that. But these are not observable, these are not quantifiable, these are not measurable objects. These are not physical objects. So these cannot be placed into the domain of science. It's very simple. That is the hard boundary of science. Science only deals with physical objects and observable phenomena. Right? Everything else falls under the realm of philosophy or spirituality. It is a different discipline. I am not saying it is a bad discipline. It is a discipline you should laugh at. No, not at all. These are very serious disciplines. They all have their place in society and in the progress and advancement of humanity. But this is that that is not science. That's how it is. So this is not a shortcoming of modern science. This is a discipline that science has to follow so that it doesn't go off track. That's just the way it is. Okay, Dia says, uh, do you think humans can get superpowers by meditation or is it a myth? Do you believe that Himalayan yogis have miraculous powers? <clears throat> so uh, there have been questions in the past. I have uh, taken these questions about, uh, the question has been like, is it possible for humanity, for a human being to utilize 100% of their brain? Right? And what I said is that we are already using 100% of the brain, but we are not using it effectively. So when you meditate, it's all about stilling your mind, but quieting your mind down. And see, the thing about the mind, the human mind, is that it's very noisy. Try and sit quietly for 30 seconds and see where your thoughts go. A million directions. All kinds of thoughts are constantly going on in your mind. So you are constantly utilizing 100% of your mind, but it's just noise, 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 noise. Random noise, uncontrolled noise. You have no control of what's happening in there. Just observe your, your, your mind for 30 seconds if you can be quiet in and all alone. And that's what you will see. So meditation is about quieting that noise down. It's about stilling the mind and focusing and focusing on itself. So there are various techniques of meditation. You focus on your breathing. Pranayama is part of that. Vipassana is also uh, also has this technique of, of, of uh, just observing your breath and 
trying to remove everything else. There is transcendental meditation and all other kinds of different meditations. They all originate in India. And the common thing is that you are removing all the extraneous noise and you just shutting all of that down. What you what you achieve by doing that is that then when you focus your mind on something, it is truly focused on that. There is no noise. And that's where you get what seems to be like superpowers. So for instance, yogis in the Himalayas, you, we can see videos of that. There is a lot of evidence for this. They have the power of being completely immune to sub-zero temperatures. These yogis will wear very little clothing, just loincloth or something, saffron. They'll be topless. They'll, their legs and arms will be, will be bare. And they will be sitting in the snow for hours and days and weeks. And they will not freeze to death. Right? You see that again and again and again. This, if you were to do it, if I were to do it, we would, we would freeze in 30 seconds. We would freeze to death in 30 seconds to 5 minutes instantaneous death in the Himalayan temperatures, minus 20, minus 30 degrees. These guys, it doesn't affect them. And there have been studies, medical studies, scientific studies about um, done on these yogis, monks, etc. Uh, they, they are placed in these MRI machines and then they go into a meditative trance and they measure the brain waves and all that and they can see that the brain wave pat patterns are very, very different. Almost like some kind of superpower. And they can even achieve certain physical effects that are essentially unheard of. So these effects are all achieved by stilling your mind and focusing it properly on whatever you're trying to achieve. And if you can really focus the entirety of your mind on that, then you can achieve things that look like superpowers. Right? So it's not unphysical, it's not supernatural, it's just the power of the human mind. And uh, nowadays, this is being repackaged in the West in various forms. There is this individual called Wim Hof who has stolen uh, these ancient Indian traditions, the tradition of pranayam and the tradition of uh, exposure to cold weather. He calls it the Wim Hof method. I would call it the Wim Hof method of cultural theft. Nothing else. So, yeah, so it is certainly possible to attain what looks like superpowers by meditation. It is not a myth, but it's also not superpowers. It is all within the realm of possibility. If you know, if you can discipline yourself to, to achieve those mental states. Okay, DV says, if we make Sanskrit our national language, is it best that we have a gradual approach? for a span of a few years or straight up make it our national language? And how do we teach people who don't go to school at a mass rate? See, any big change cannot happen overnight. If you want to make Sanskrit India's national language, it has to be at least a 20-year plan, a very well-planned, phased rollout of Sanskrit as a national language. It has to happen through the education system and through the government uh, machinery. Right. So what you would typically do is you would start by first educating the teachers in Sanskrit. Every teacher should have a certain level of proficiency in Sanskrit. And then you start with the lowest level in education from, from kindergarten, junior kg, senior kg, then first year, second year, third year. And then you do it year by year. So the, the generation that started with Sanskrit at the lowest level in kindergarten, they will be the first generation that will do the entire schooling in Sanskrit. And the next generation also, the next year also can 
continue with that. So it has to be a slow phased rollout nationwide. It may take a generation, it may take 20 years, maybe 30 years. But uh, you can take the example of Israel, how they were able to do it. They themselves had uh, lost their cultural language, Hebrew. It was it had gone out of use for at least a thousand years, but they were able to revive it. And today it is their national language. It is their vernacular language. It's the language in which they conduct their day-to-day lives. So it can very much be done. Sanskrit has been out of use for about 150 years only. Before that, it was the medium of education throughout India. This is well attested. So it can certainly be done, but it cannot be done overnight. It has to be done in a phased manner over a period of 20 or 30 years. That's the way you would do it properly and bring it back into the mainstream. Okay, let's take one more question for today. Sachin says, can you provide some background on Mihir Kul and and his so-called atrocities against Buddhist stupas and monks? Many Marxist historians paint this as Hindu destruction of Buddha Dharma in India. Thank you. So Mihir Kul was a Hunnic king. Um... He was in power in uh, northwestern India, present-day Punjab, present-day Pakistan, present-day Afghanistan. He had a sizable kingdom and he was in power in this region, I think somewhere in the 5th or 6th century AD, most likely the 6th century AD. So he was a Hun, he was a Hunnic invader. Now the Huns typically, apart from Mahir Kul, assimilated into Indian population into and, and they, they absorbed Indian culture. They became Indian by culture and practice. But Mihir Kul was an exception. So there is a Chinese traveler whose name I forget. It was not Fahian or Xuanzang. It was a, somebody else. He had come to India at the time. And what he records is that this individual Mihir Kul was a complete barbarian. He was not a believer in any god. He was a godless person. He was an atheist. And all his subjects were unhappy under his rule. So he persecuted the Brahmins. He persecuted the teachers of the Vedas. He persecuted the the Buddhist monks. He destroyed Buddhist stupas. And he was hated all around. Nobody was happy under him. Neither the so-called Buddhists, neither the so-called Hindus, neither the so-called Brahmins. Nobody was happy under his rule. He was just a barbarian. And barbarian, not by blood, but by action. Okay, so that's the kind of guy Mihir Kul was. Later, uh, Hunnic rulers were very much Indian. They even defended defended India from the Turks, against the Turks in the future. But Mihir Kul was an exception. A godless barbarian who persecuted all, all these people. Whether they're Brahmins or Buddhist practitioners or monks or anybody else. Everybody was unhappy under his rule. Now you're right. The Marxist historians try to portray Mihir Kul as a Shaivite. I think uh, if you if you look at I think the Encyclopedia Britannica or something, in there Mihir Kul is is portrayed as a practitioner of Shaivite Hinduism, without any evidence whatsoever. But if you look at the account of the Chinese traveler who came to India and who took back lots of uh, Dharmic texts back to China eventually, if you look at his account, it is clear that Mihir Kul did not practice any religion whatsoever. He was not a Dharmic person. He was an adharmic person. He persecuted all Dharmic people. So these uh, 
this portrayal of Mirkul as a Hindu is a lie. It's an outright fabrication. All right. <coughs> excuse me, excuse me. Okay, let us take a couple of questions from the comments or from the from the live chat. Do you guys have some questions that I should take from the live chat? If you have any, let me know. Ask some questions and I will take a few before we end this uh, this particular session. Uh, one second. So Lily Joshua says, Tamils are the descendants of whom? The Tamils are the descendants of the ancient Indians from 10,000 years ago. See, India is the original founder zone of the out-of-Africa migration. The out-of-Africa migration happened about 75, 80,000 years before today. And this bunch of humans, Homo sapiens, who came out of Africa, crossed over into Asia. Let me show you where. They crossed over into Asia around here. Uh, sorry, not there. Around here. There is this uh, strait called the Bab al-Mandav Strait. It is over here. Most likely that the migration, the crossing over from Africa into Asia happened. And these ancient humans, they traveled across the coastline. And eventually, the first place where they made a permanent settlement was India, the Indian subcontinent. This happened about 70,000 years ago. And India is the world's, uh, is the oldest out of Africa founder zone. And today's Indians are the descendants of those ancient migrants. So our ancestors have been in India for about 70,000 years. We are the oldest non-African population in the entire world. So the Tamils and all other Indians are the descendants of those ancient Indians. That's all I can say. And this is proven genetically. I, I have a podcast with Dr. Neeraj Rai coming up in, in two, three days. Please watch that podcast and see what he has to say about this. Okay, Saurabh says, why are we not excavating Dwarka, Gujarat? We, we need to ask the ASI, we need to ask the government of India, why are we not excavating Dwarka? Why? It is a travesty. We have this place, which is known to be the place where Lord Krishna ruled in the days of the Mahabharata. We have this sunken city, exactly where the Mahabharata says the sunken city would be found. We have found it, but we are not excavating it. What is the reason? Because these people, they don't want the people of India to know the truth about their history. So that's why they're not excavating Dwarka. They will spend all their budget allocation on restoring Turkic monuments, Mughal monuments, but they will not invest it in excavating Dwarka and preserving and, and doing proper research on either the, the Beit Dwarka island, the island of Dwarka or the sunken city. So let's see where is Dwarka, Beit Dwarka. See, this is Dwarka. This is the modern town of Dwarka. And off the coast of this modern town of Dwarka, just off the coast, we have the sunken city. Somewhere around here. I'm, I don't know exactly where it is, but it is somewhere around here. And then you have the island of Beit Dwarka. And you can see how it is being encroached. You can see how this island is being encroached. You can see the encroachments all over. This is a historical treasure of, of, of India's civilization. And see what's being, what's being done there. Wait another 20-30 years and the Waqf board will take over this island. So that's where we are. So it's just unfortunate. 
why don't you <laughs> why don't you sing it sir the ussr national anthem i i am not adept in singing that particular song it essentially used to say that we are indestructible right which is something that uh, turned out to be false my views on shark tank india well i haven't watched any episode so i can't say but i think it's a good idea it's a, it's a better kind of reality show than what is it that they have uh, big brother or whatever i think shark tank would would be a much better way much better reality show people can actually learn something from there um uh, okay what else do we have he was not a barbarian he was woke he practiced equality outstanding <laughs> yep 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 i am sure mihir kul was woke he was not a barbarian uh, today's marxists and today's historians would call mihir kul a woke egalitarian person i'm sure maybe a feminist as well uh what else do we have uh, okay i think i'm going to end it here it's been an hour and 45 minutes so thank you everybody for your questions very interesting questions as always and i'm i once again apologize to those of you whose questions i have not been able to take i can only take 20 30 questions per session i get hundreds per week thousands per week so i am sorry to those of you whose questions i could not take but i try to take questions that would be uh that would impart some good knowledge to all of you so that's that's the emphasis that i have and that's what we will keep on doing so i will see you tomorrow tomorrow is a live chat session so i will see you there be ready with your best questions and let's have an interesting session tomorrow same time same channel until then thank you very much and i will see you tomorrow thank you bye